Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Indeed. And of course, the lines are open immediately. I can see them already going crazy. Give us a call and squeeze in your question. You've got about 23 minutes to do so. 011-883-0702. And in Cape Town, you can put a question to Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, by dialing the number 021-446-0567. Good morning, Chris. Hey, good morning, Eusebius. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Our science story for the week, Chris, is absolutely fascinating. Um, It's amazing. I always thought it will take many, many decades before we get to the possibility of personalized medicine, let alone personalized skin cancer vaccine. Yes, so this uh, this actually is a brace of two quite important papers in the journal Nature this week where scientists have taken the first steps towards producing a personalised vaccine to prevent people who have been diagnosed with a form of skin cancer called malignant melanoma from having a return of their cancer. So the first paper is by Kathy Wu. She's at the Dana-Faber Cancer Institute in Boston in America. What this group did was to take it's a small group, just six patients, but it's what they call a phase one clinical trial. They took six patients who had been diagnosed with malignant melanoma, and these patients had undergone the initial treatment for their melanoma, say you had a skin lesion that had been removed. But what they then did was to, to sequence the DNA of the tumour and then sequence the DNA of the healthy tissue and compare the two. And what they were looking for were the genetic differences between the tumour and the healthy tissue, and they then used a computer programme to ask, of these differences, Hmm. which ones will be reflected in a difference on the surfaces of cancer cells in terms of the chemical markers they display, and which ones will be most apparent to the immune system? And once they got a short list of maybe 20 of these, they then made the proteins that those mutated genes would have made in the cancer cells and turned them into a vaccine. This was injected into patients, and of those six patients, none had side effects, but none have had a a, a relapse of their condition in the two-year follow-up. So it looks like it has programmed the immune system to seek out and destroy cancer cells specifically Mm. but not harm healthy tissue because it's exploiting the differences between the cancer and healthy tissue so that the immune system knows what to target and this is the first time they've actually ever done this for an individual because previously people have tried to sort of stimulate an immune response against the tumor in Mm. general but to do it in such a surgical and precise way at a molecular level like this is a game changer And now, obviously, the next step is going to be what happens when you do this with a much much bigger group of patients. And the other thing that Kathy Wu told me when I spoke to her earlier this week is 
they're now beginning to ask, well, we know this works for skin cancer. Will it work for other yes. kinds of cancers as well? So they're beginning to explore that possibility as well. So it is exciting, but it is early days. We have to be cautious, mm. but, but cautiously optimistic. Beautiful stuff. Give us a call if you've got a question for Chris on 011-8830702. That's the Johannesburg number. And, of course, in Cape Town on 021-446-0567. You're most welcome to also just alternatively tweet us a question. You can tweet me at Eusebius or at Radio 702 or at Cape Talk. Let's go to Centurion. On the line with us, Chris, we've got Anne. Good morning, Anne. What is your question? Uh, good morning, Eusebius. A question for Chris, please. A quick one. What can a person do with RLS, restless leg syndrome? You're taking up um, magnesium and all that, and you're still up the whole night with this restless leg syndrome. You can't keep your legs still in bed. You've just got to move, move, move them. Chris? It's a tricky one, and it's not, it's not unknown. I mean, a lot of people have this. We don't really understand what causes it. What um, is it, Chris, we, we by the way? What is restless this. leg well, syndrome? Well, when people have restless leg syndrome, it's something which, as the name suggests, the sort of clue is in the name, um, people will find that they just cannot sit still. Their legs have to keep moving, and it tends mm. to happen at bedtime when you get tired, mm. and you just can't get yourself comfortable. And it's not pain or discomfort. It's just this... Dis- indescribable urge to move around. I think would that summarise it reasonably, Anne? Pardon? It's an it's an irresistible urge to move around. Anne, how would you describe it? Restless leg syndrome. Yes, it's a. You lay on your side. I drink milk before I go to bed. You lay on your side. Then you find your right leg. Mm. You think, oh no, I can't keep my right. Then you try and go back to sleep. You can't keep the moving. Then you turn over, oh. and it's more or less on one side. But then now and again, it. Comes the left leg. Sure, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's what we call an idiopathic condition, and that means it's doctor speak for we don't know what causes this. Um, a reasonable proportion of people get it. There are a range of measures that are advised, but none of them are curative. And the advice is get into a good sleeping pattern because adopting a regular healthy sleeping pattern does seem to help. Smoking is also a risk factor, I don't know why, but uh, encouraging people not to smoke because perhaps um, the withdrawal effect of not having smoked when you're going to bed makes people then a bit more tetchy and perhaps that makes problems worse. So either of those two things might be something to consider, but other than that, I'm sorry, all I can say is Medicine is baffled. We don't know what it is, but we know it's a real nuisance for people. Mm. Scott Soweto, Bongani, good morning to you. What is your question? Hi, uh, you see if I Very well, thank you, sir. Uh, thanks. Hi, I, I, Nikki. I, uh, I just have a quick question for the professor. I, I read this article that says in Mark they found a toxic chemical called uh, perchlorates. Um, yeah, basically, it destroys like any organism that that will like grow there i just want to know how far how, like how far can it spread throughout the planet okay. oh well perchlorate is just a, is is the name of a class of chemicals which has got chlorine and oxygen atoms in it and these are very common chemicals and in fact we use them in things like fireworks and explosives so um they're, they're quite universal but they they are toxic that's true um but then so are lots of things toxic oxygen is toxic if you have it in the right amounts mm. <laughs> so or the wrong amounts i suppose you could say so um th- there's no imminent danger to you it's another class of chemical there are there are lots of examples of this being used quite safely as long as you're careful with it thanks mongani for your question patrick good morning 
Good morning, CBS, and good morning to the to the good scientist. <laughs> um, I wanted to know, uh, you know, the question about data. Why does data expire, and how does it work? Why does what? Sorry. Data. How does data? Which data are you talking why, about? Why? Why does it? You know. You know, like uh, cell phone data and whatever data. You know what I'm saying? Vodacom data, MTM data. Yes, I know why, what you're talking why, about. Why, yeah. why? I don't know if that's a very South African nomenclature, Chris. <laughs> We've been having this debate with our networks here. You buy data and you get two gigs or whatever, and then suddenly it expires. I don't even quite know what that means other than the fact that it costs me a lot of money. Do you understand what Patrick yeah. is getting at? Yeah, yeah, I understand. No, uh, the, the reason for this, mobile phone companies, when you have a relationship with a the company, they are granting you the right when you buy data you're not buying a product like a tin of tomatoes or something. You are buying a, an opportunity over a window of time to download or have traffic to your device which adds up to that amount of data. And the, re- the reason they do it like that is because the company have got a whole bunch of cell phone masts and they've only got a certain amount of throughput that they can put through there because all the time they're transmitting data through their networks, it's, it's effectively costing the network money. So they are allocating to you a slice of, you imagine a big cake, hmm. you've got a slice which is a certain number of megabytes of data. Now, if you don't come along and eat your cake, then it doesn't matter to the company because they just haven't had to transmit that data. But the time window expires and your opportunity to go in and eat your slice of cake is over. And the next month you have to have another one. Um, The other thing to be aware of is that some web pages are not very well coded. And so as a result, they might continuously keep touching the source server that's supplying that page to update some data on the page, for example. And so although you're not actually actively interacting with your device, it could nonetheless still be talking to the website that you're displaying on your device. So you can hemorrhage data that way. So you can use up your data allocation without actually having to do any more on the device. So be very cautious about that. But that's why companies do this. They allocate you an opportunity over a window in time to download some data. But the next month that resets. It doesn't accumulate because what they're selling you is a a chunk of the pipe that the data comes down to get to your device. They're not Mm. selling you a physical product. 16 minutes after 10, you're listening to the familiar voice of the Naked Scientist. Okay, let's go to On Decker's Park. Rueda, good morning to you. Good morning. Sirius, I want to know, why does our tummies rumble, even when we're not hungry? <laughs> Chris? Yeah. Okay, well, a, a good question back for you. Do you know what the scientific term for a rumbly tummy is? What is it? Oh. Bet you don't. It's, um, it's borborygmy. That's the proper medical term oh. for your tummy rumbling. Borborygmy is, is bowel sounds and bowel noises. Mm. And the reason this happens is usually because when we have a regular eating habit, you normally have breakfast at a certain time of the day, lunch at a certain time of the day, dinner at a certain time of the day. Your intestines have enormous numbers of nerve cells in them. Uh, there's almost as many nerve cells in bits of your bowel as there are in bits of some people's brains. In fact, more in some people's cases, like Jacob Zuma, for example, <laughs> probably. But, um, but um, the fact is that those nerve cells learn, and they're there for a reason, because they learn your bowel habit. 
they learn mm. when you need to make space, when you need to move things along, when you need to secrete digestive juices and when you need to get the blood flow right to absorb all the calories that are coming in from your dinner. And because it's learned that pattern of breakfast at a certain time, lunch at a certain time, dinner at a certain time, then as a result, if you don't feed your tummy when it's expecting food, it's all geared up and ready. It's a bit like having the cooker turned on and it's, uh, you know, the, the, the air con's on, the table's laid, the wine glasses are out, the cutlery's there, but there's no food on the table and everyone's sitting there getting disgruntled going, where's my dinner? It, your tummy is doing the same thing. And it's literally the muscles are gearing up, moving fluids and digestive juices around, but they've got nothing to act against. So you basically squelch everything backwards and forwards inside and you're hearing the squelching noises of everything... Uh, it's like an empty cement mixer going around going come on where's the food and those are the noises you hear as the muscles are contracting expecting their dinner 19 minutes after 10 Mandisi's tweet Vodacom please hire the naked scientist to be your spokesperson he just explained why data disappears so nicely to you CBS 702 and Cape Talk the naked scientist why is Mohao walking in here he's like Wanting to get some of our laughter. You guys can have your own jokes there on the other side, man. Let's go to Fishhook. Hello, Richard. Good morning to you. What question do you have? Uh, good morning, you serious one, Chris. Um, why is it that some people are ticklish and some not? Which category are you in, Richard? I'm in the ticklish category. <laughs> and I've got friends who just don't respond at all. To and being... it's annoying because they can tickle you, but you can't get any no, revenge. Even if a finger comes near the area, <laughs> Let's ask Chris. Chris? Hello, Richard. Hello. Um, I'm actually relatively resistant to being tickled but my daughter's very ticklish. And this came in handy because I put her on a, a radio programme. We thought we'd, we'd introduce her at the age of only about five or six. <laughs> I thought we'd get her into broadcasting from an early age because I needed a subject because a radio station in New Zealand called Radio New Zealand National, they got in touch with me and said, we have heard that this, I think it was formerly a massage parlour in Spain, has been relaunched as a tickle parlour and people are turning up for therapeutic tickling. And uh, would you like to explain what tickling is and, and why it works? So I got my daughter on the radio and then I elicited two types of tickle because there are two different types of tickle reaction. Um, the first is if you sort of lay your forearm um, on the table in front of you with the wrist upwards and you just gently stroke up and down your wrist with the tips of the finger of your opposite hand, that sort of sensation, that is quite a pleasant sensation, but it's the same sort of sensation that maybe a fly or an insect would elicit on your skin if it were walking over you. That sensation is called nismesis. And, uh, and most people find that quite pleasurable. Some people find it more exquisite than others. And then I did the other one, which is if you place your th thumb and index finger on either side of your kneecap and squeeze rhythmically on either side of your knee, or you do this, it usually works better on another person, obviously, if you put your hands just above your hips and squeeze in on the side of your abdomen. That produces this often very deep-throated, um, out-of-control laughter, and that's called gargalysis. That's the other kind of funny tickling sensation, so we actually break it down into two. And people are differentially susceptible to this. Some people uh, are very, very ticklish, others much less so. Mm. It's almost certainly individual differences, but everyone is 
ticklish to a point. Mm. It, you can't really tickle yourself, probably because your brain has a region in it which can tell, it anticipates sensations that are going to be coming in, and it anticipates the expected and subtracts them from or, or dims the effect down in your consciousness. So you, you, that's why you find it hard to tickle yourself. But because being tickled by someone else is, you can't predict what they're going to do exactly when they're going to do it. You can't cancel it out. Yes. The reason probably all of us are nonetheless ticklish is probably a protective mechanism. Now, the argument goes something like where we're most ticklish are where our most sensitive, delicate bits are, where we're most susceptible to injury. So what it does, they say, and this is just one hypothesis, but it seems like a good one, what they think is that when kids are playing and they're little and they're playing with their parents or playing with each other, you effectively turn into a game and a bit of fun learning where your most vulnerable bits are. And therefore, if you know where those bits are and you play and you learn in a safe environment how to avoid letting someone get at those very sensitive bits, then when you're in a real dangerous situation, you have already practised the guarding behaviour and the avoidance behaviour that helps to protect those bits. Mm. So that's probably why we're all a bit ticklish, but some people just are a bit more ticklish than others. In the same way that some people like more certain foods more than others, yes. we perhaps have a different density of innovation or nerve supply to those areas, and perhaps that makes some people a little bit more ticklish than others. Fantastic. Let's go to Stellenbosch. Joseph, good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Eusebius. Good morning, the naked scientists. Listen, um, I, I called in before uh, in, uh, um, with Kino So, but anyway, I, I didn't get the results that I wanted. My boy, he turned six uh, the other day, and when he turned five, he begin, uh, began uh, like grinding his teeth. So um, what, is, what is the reason for him doing that? I'll listen on the radio if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, good morning. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that you're, you're worried about your son. I hope you sort that out. Um, the answer is people sometimes do this when they're awake. They sometimes do it when they're asleep. Most people who grind their teeth tend to do it when they go to sleep. It can be a sign of anxiety. It can be a learned thing. And if someone does do this and they find they're waking up with an aching jaw and, and their teeth are, are not faring too well, a trip to the dentist in order to get some mouth guards, which you can wear at night, they just fit over the teeth, can stop your teeth from damaging each other. So that might be an idea. I, I would hesitate to, to answer exactly why it's happening to your son, because I don't know your son, I don't know the situation. Everyone's different. It might be just a, a natural habit in him, but sometimes there can be some kind of anxiety reason for this happening or stress or something. Um, so it might be perfectly normal, but it might be worth uh, asking someone to take a look at him and just making sure that everything's okay. Thank you, Joseph. Let's go to Rand back. Hello, Brenda. Hello. Good morning to both of you. Um, medication. I take several different pills per day. I'd like to know how does that particular pill know that it must... Um, work on my thyroid, maybe the other one on my anxiety, etc., etc. How do these pills know where to go? Hello, Brenda. Good um, morning. The answer to your question is that the what is in the pill? What's in the pill is a molecule, a chemical which has a very specific shape, and where it's going in the body to do its job is a set of cells that have on their surface or inside the cells, a receptor. And the best way to think about this is you have a hand, which has got fingers, and a hand that's a certain shape. That's the drug molecule. And the receptor it's looking for in the body, the cells, have a glove. And 
different shaped hands, different molecules, go into different shaped gloves. And the target around the body that this pill is going for is quite different to that target. So actually it's like different shaped hands and different shaped gloves, or to put it another way, different shaped keys and different shaped locks. And these drugs are exploiting the fact that different cells and different groups of cells and different organ systems in the body have different receptors and therefore you need a different drug molecule to go and target those receptors and do things to them and that's how you make drugs very selective and the drugs which have the, fl the fewest side effects are the drugs which are the best fit between the hand and the glove. I'll take one from one or two from Twitter. We've got two minutes left. Felicity wants to know from you, Chris. Please ask the naked scientist why raised levels of PTH cause calcium to be leached from one's bones and could it cause migraines too? Well, the, the answer is that PTH stands for parathyroid hormone. Mm. The parathyroids are tiny glands they're in your neck behind the thyroid that's what they're called parathyroid because they're just beyond the thyroid underneath they're very small smaller than a pea each of them there's there's about four of them and they secrete parathyroid hormone into the bloodstream in response to a low calcium level normally and this goes to various places including to your skeleton and it says to the cells that make up the bones we need calcium please secrete into the bloodstream calcium by eating a bit of bone away and leaching the calcium into the bloodstream and this only normally happens when you have low levels of calcium or you need more calcium in your diet it can happen pathologically if something goes wrong with one of the parathyroids or if some cells in the body start to release a chemical a bit like the parathyroid hormone that does this calcium is incredibly important in your body it's a really really crucial signal in muscles and also in nerve cells and they need calcium to work properly so it's really critical that the bloodstream maintains the right level of calcium in your body fluids the skeleton is a very convenient storage of calcium and you're not going to do yourself any harm by borrowing a bit of calcium it's a bit like going into the bank and having a temporary overdraft mm. you take a bit of calcium out today you put the calcium back in to pay the debt back later and you rebuild that bit of skeleton it's only a problem if it goes on for a long time and also if the calcium levels are too high because if something goes wrong and you start to put too much calcium into the bloodstream then the calcium can deposit into various tissues and then it can start to cause problems you get ca calcium deposition calcification in various tissues and this, if this happens in the kidney for example you can get kidney stones it can also cause other problems as well so um, it, I've not heard of, of high calcium being linked to migraines but in medicine anything can happen mm. and if you've got high calcium levels or high parathyroid hormone levels there's a reason for that it needs investigating and it should be sorted out Chris thank you for sharing your knowledge with us and have a beautiful weekend it's a pleasure thanks very much everybody great questions see you soon Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.